Welcome to The Waggle, presented by Sport Clips, the official podcast of the Canadian Football League. Welcome, welcome, welcome once again to The Waggle, this free agency edition, and we stayed up late and we're giving this to you early. Uh, as the first day of free agency is in the book. So we're going to break it down here on The Waggle, on The Waggle, which is brought to you by our friends at Sport Clips, known for their Sport Clips MVP haircut experience, which includes shampoo massaged into your scalp, hot steam towels for your face, and sports on TV, like, for example, football, hockey, baseball, and, of course, basketball. It is good to be a guy. It is good to have a legendary haircut. It is good to be a sport clips guy. And maybe some of our new free agents who have bounced around the league will be looking for a sports clips location in their new home cities as there was a lot of movement on day one of free agency. So we're going to break it down for you. And for the list of all players, where they are, and the list of the remaining big names, make sure to go to cfl.ca. But right here on the waggle first, we're going to talk to Farhan Lalji about the big moves, about what uh, the team on the west side of the country, the BC Lions, were able to do, a team he knows obviously very well. And after that, we're going to talk to Spencer Zimmerman, a veteran in the front offices of the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the Toronto Argonauts, respectively. He's going to break down what this time of year is like from a front office perspective. What are some of the challenges in evaluating players and finding a fit for them on your team. But first up, talking about the new players on new teams, Farhan Lalji joins the Waggle. So it's day one free agency uh, in the books, and a lot of teams did their work early, uh, and there's still some decent names out there on the board, but no one better to put some context on what we've seen thus far and what we might continue to see uh than farhan the insider with all of the knots thank you so much for making the time and and I, before we even get to free agency I, I actually want to get your perspective on a guy you've covered and someone you know uh really well and that's that's solly in his retirement it it took me a bit by surprise because he, he still in great shape but but you know him well so i'm sure it wasn't a total surprise to you for those who haven't been able to see him play up close and know the force of personality he is on a football team and on a culture um you know what would you say about his career in the cfl well first of all donovan thanks for having me on and i gotta tell you that uh, this is long overdue because i've been a big fan of your work especially on the social justice side over at sportsnet so i'm really really excited to talk to you number one uh, and Solly would probably appreciate me saying that too, because I know he's a big fan of your work on that side. Um, and it. you know what, in, in terms of, of him, you know, he's a special player, right? I mean, he's a guy that uh, never really took anything for, for granted. I, I know that when he first tried out for the Lions, you know, Wally said to him, ah, yeah, you're okay. Like, you know, you, you got to come back another day. Right. And, you know, come to our Vegas workout. They saw him in LA says, come to our Vegas workout so we can look at you more. And in the middle of that, I think the bombers had him for a workout and they didn't want to sign him. And then he went to Vegas and they decided to sign him. And, you know, he came in early and you, you just knew that this guy was just a ferocious, violent hitter. Mike Benavidi said that to me right away. Like, you got to check this guy out. Like when he hits, you hear it, you feel it. And he was able to translate that. I mean, you know, sometimes you play the game at a high level. Sometimes guys come in and they want to make that instant impression. But then once they get their job and they get comfortable, then they kind of play a little bit differently. And he played one way all the time. When he hit you, you felt it. And he was able to maintain all of that throughout his career. And, 
I'm not totally surprised that this happened only because I think a year ago, things were pretty exhausting for him, right? To go through everything as far as, uh, you know, what the, the whole COVID side of it and all the CBA negotiations and everything that he was doing to try to get his body right so that he could potentially play, but still manage um, the, the PA responsibilities to get the, the games going, which ultimately they didn't. But, you know, you could just see that it was kind of weighing on him a little bit at the time. Uh, I know him well enough to know that he was doing a lot of additional work and trying to further his own, uh, you know, financial situation and get ready for life after football, right? I mean, this is a guy that had a lot of real estate interest. You know, one day I'm talking to him and he's telling me that he's got eight different properties. And I said, Solly, are you serious? You've got eight different properties? So, uh, you know, it, it just dawned on me that this is one bright guy and he's ready for life after and he is not going to define himself by football. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad he was able to walk away on his own terms and and not have to be forced out by injury or forced out by somebody telling him he was too old. He was still able to play the game at a high level. And I think he leaves a legacy. You, you've got to put him in the discussion as best defensive player of all time. Now, it's been 10 years. And he's the only guy that's won the MOP as a defensive player. So you have to put him in that discussion. So just a tremendous legacy on the field, off it with what he's done for the PA. And I think we're going to be hearing about Solomon Elamimian for a long time. It's funny you say that because that was my exact next question. Because not only if we're looking, you know, backwards, right, potentially best player of all time, you look at the resume that you mentioned, winning outstanding player as a defensive player, you know, won awards as a rookie, twice defensive player of the year, won a cup with the Lions, um, made it to 10 seasons, nine with one team, right? The, the average, you know, for most is around three. But not even looking backwards in comparison to other players, Projecting forward, the, just the state of the game, I don't think you're going to see someone that good playing in the CFL for, for that long at, at that level. Uh, so I don't know if anyone's going to be able to put together a resume moving forward like the one uh, he did. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think when we're talking about his historical measure, I think he's right up there. And I, 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 I can't see someone you know, touching him because, you know, and Alex Singleton is here for a bit and then gone. Um, is, is that a, a fair assessment and why he's so special? Yeah, I think so, right? And I, and I really believe if he'd had a, you know, a more of an opportunity like Alex did, he probably could have done some really good things in the NFL because he was extremely athletic. And we've seen undersized linebackers get those opportunities. But when he went down for the tryout, he had the hamstring problems. And you know that so many things have to line up for a CFL player to go down there and get the right opportunity and take advantage of it. And you couple that with the fact that we're seeing less and less continuity in our league as far as players sticking with franchises for a long period of time. So the fact that he could do nine years out of his 10 in one city, I think that becomes more and more rare in the one and done era of free agency. And I hope the league and the PA can eventually find some real mechanisms to fix that. And then you've also got the dollars involved right now. I hope that, you know, what we've seen this year, you know, and I know we're going to talk about free agency is just a real, real bloodletting in terms of costs and, and what salaries are going to look like. And now we've only got one defensive player left, one non-quarterback left that's making over 200000 So I certainly hope that in the next 24 to 36 months, as we come out of COVID and revenues go back up and the league recovers, that we can get salaries back up a little bit. But that also takes incentive away for a lot of players to want to play and commit to the league, right? So when you add all of those things up, I think it's tough uh, for for anybody to touch what Solomon has done. 
He mentioned the financial aspect of it. And forget about the actual league cap. We're seeing teams in front offices who are being given their own cap in terms of what you may or may not spend, Mm -hmm. um, which causes some uncomfortable conversations between uh, GMs and agents as we all try to figure out um, our new normal post-COVID. What's the ripple effect uh, of that? Or do Canadians uh, who are willing to, to, you know, invest in their communities and, and maybe make some money off the field, do they become a little bit more value? How does that shake out, do you think? It's a good question, you know, and I think there's very little loyalty, right? There's very little loyalty in either direction. You know, I think there's a lot of players who believe I'm going to come in and I'm going to really, really establish roots in this community and I'm going to make myself even more valuable. And that's the way it should be. That's the way the league should want this to work. Because, you know, if you come to a city, you want to invest, but you also want to try to potentially get some business interests in place that can carry you after football. You know, that's one of the the great things that, that Solomon did, right, is that he set himself up. You look at Adam Big Hill when he went to Winnipeg. He set himself up in the business community. You look at a guy that I covered out here for a long time, Jason Araki, who wound up getting such a good business opportunity that he just he couldn't walk away from it. Marco Iannucci, that's kind of the way it's supposed to work. So you hope that there's some sort of incentive for that to happen. I you know I, I see less and less of that because you know, you, you look at the way contracts and things around the league work and, you know, everybody is thinking, OK, what happens on that second contract? Is that player going to go home or can I make it enticing enough for him to want to be here and to take a hometown discount and, and what have you? Right. So I, I hope we see more of that. I mean, you know, one of my great memories of Solomon is him speaking at my son's elementary school. Right. And and one of the kids that was there that was my son's friend all of a sudden says, OK, I want to play football and I want to be a linebacker. You know, and he decided to come out primarily because he got to have his picture taken with Solomon and all the activity that that uh, the Lions do in the community. And I know that CFL teams are really good at making that happen. So I hope it doesn't get defined by dollars all the time, because the one thing that that Wally said to Solly and he says to all his players and he said it to Jason, don't let football use you. You use football. And really, that's what this should be about, like nobody's going to come into this league thinking I'm going to be rich. They're going to continue playing the game that they love with hopes that they can set themselves up for life after football and use football to make that happen. So, you know, I hope players are educated to that reality and the teams facilitate that so that, you know, there's still incentive to play and for kids to want to be in this league. Yeah. We're at a point where I'm surprised if I see a deal that's longer than one year. And, yeah. and I feel like both the club and the team side are very happy to keep the deals short. You look at, you know, the NFL, the, the, the players are, are looking for longer deals and the team is saying, no, the NBA, the players are looking for shorter deals and the teams are looking for longer deals. In the CFL, it seems both sides are very willing to keep the relationship super short. I, I want to talk about some of the, you know, the moves that we've seen early and, and the moves that were were done early before we hit free agency i've always been fascinated on how much the mlsc culture would trickle over to the argonauts and and, and would they kind of fall in line in that methodology and what i mean when i say that is you know from a from a competitive standpoint MLSC has just decided we're just going to throw money at our problems, right? There's a, a cap in the NBA. That's fine. There's no cap on what we could pay coaches. We're going to have 10 assistant coaches, two rows of them, and we're going to spend and we're going to get you a, a great training facility and whatnot. You know, we're going to spend more on designated imports and soccer than we are, uh, and, and we probably should from a business case, and spend more than anyone else in the MLS. And 
I was like, is there a way that you can apply that to the CFL? You can't do it with the players. There's a football ops tax. You can't really do it there. But now at a time when a lot of teams are really reticent to spend, uh, MLSC and well, the Argos were players for some some players that I ne- didn't necessarily think w- would would come to Toronto. Is there a way that they're going to be able to make all these moves financially make sense? Because when I look at what they've done thus far, I'm like that that all sounds nice. But how are you fitting all of these guys uh, on one one tax bill? Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see for all of these teams how it winds up fleshing out because they're all trying to operate at the salary cap floor and nobody trusts each other, right? (laughs) And they all think that, hey, by the end of it, like it all sounds good now, but as we go through the season, everyone's going to bend. And right now it's the presidents that are telling every GM, you will not spend more than this. And MLSC and, and John Murphy and Pinball Clemens, they didn't give out any signing bonuses at all. Then all of a sudden, at the 11th hour, Nick Arbuckle got a signing bonus. Eric Rogers got a signing bonus. Charleston Hughes got a signing bonus. But they were able to keep a lot of people at bay for a long period of time without doing that. So, you know, they, there, there was kind of a harsh corporate financial reality that kind of came from the top and it impacted how they did business. Eventually, they moved off it a little bit, but they're certainly spending less on signing bonuses than everybody else. I really hope that MLSC takes the Argo franchise seriously and starts investing a little bit in infrastructure. Uh, you know, I, I'm not that person that believes we're going to find an NFL team in Toronto. I think this is where it's got to become big. And I think everybody believed that the only way it was going to work in Toronto is if MLSC took it over and put some some might behind it. And they've taken it over. I'm not sure they put a lot of might behind it yet. So I'm hoping that that happens sooner than later. And when you look at the other teams in the league, Donovan, what are the most desirable places to play? Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, Edmonton. Why is that? It's because those players can go into situations and get treated like real pros, right? And even Hamilton has improved their facilities with their new stadium, uh, Ottawa to a lesser degree. You know, and, and we need the big markets to kind of get caught up. You hope Calgary gets caught up. Their organization has been so fantastic, uh, you know, from a huffnagel down, but not necessarily their infrastructure. Uh, you know, I don't think they're going to get a new stadium, but, you know, could they get different types of facilities? You know, you want to make sure you can keep up. When you go, when you go to Toronto, they don't necessarily have those types of big-time facilities. You walk into Commonwealth Stadium, you feel like you're in an NFL setup, right, because of how good their, their training facilities are, right? And uh, in BC, I mean, their facility was cutting edge in 1985 when it opened. It's not 1985 anymore. So I think some of these teams need to catch up in terms of infrastructure because so few things separate where you can go because, you know, when you talk to these players – yeah, I'm going to see what's out there for the market. There's nothing more for them in the market than what their existing team is going to pay. So what else can you offer? Can you help me on the business side? Can you put me in great locker room facilities, great training facilities, You know, make me feel important? All those types of things, those are where the hairs get split. And I hope that MLSC can step forward and try to create a better situation for those players in Toronto. Yeah, you know, I've talked to you know, our mutual friend, Dwayne Ford, a bunch about you know, the the tough task you have as an evaluator of figuring out how much a player loves football and how much a player loves everything that comes with playing football. And you 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 cover the NCAA extensively, and mm-hmm. you know coming from you know a Power Five conference where you're king on campus and you are in facilities that, quite frankly, are better than NFL facilities. And sure. then coming to the CFL 
and you're going to practice on a school bus and you're practicing at a high school facility, like will your level of dedication, of attention to detail, of, of care, will it drop when everything doesn't seem as big or as important? So I, I think you're bang on when it is an intrinsic advantage to recruiting players and to really, you know, getting your players to perform when your facilities look professional if, if you're trying to run a professional league. The, the Bombers, um, you know, certainly uh, have now, great facilities um, and they have some continuity and leadership uh, and they had to have a lot of tough conversations in terms of um, bringing back some of their players who were trying to defend a championship but hey guess what you're going to do it for less money they didn't as of yet really make a splash uh, in, in free agency is is that because you know the the depth on their roster is okay and there just isn't really much room to to improve it at this point yeah, I mean, I think more than anything, you know, they had some spots they needed to, to get taken care of. Their their big thing is they got everybody done early, right? And they didn't feel the need to go out. I mean, would they have liked to have gotten, you know, a number one receiver? I, you know, I know they made Brian Burnham an offer that was a little bit more than what the Lions offered him. Um, would they have liked to, to get into a situation like that? Sure, they would have. But by and large, they were able to win with, with a real similar roster to what they've got now. And I, I think they also believe in their evaluation department, right, their personnel department. I mean, they had... They've got Ted Govaya, who does a really good job. They've got Danny McManus, who does a really good job. And before that, they also had Ryan Rigmaiden, who's now with the Lions, as part of that personnel group. You don't have a lot of teams with groups that are that deep. So I think they believe they can fill in the gaps, which every personnel department needs to do. And, you know, talking to those players, the Adam Big Hills, the Andrew Harris's, and, and these guys that wound up deciding to stay there, it mattered to them to stay there. Mike O'Shea has created a fabulous culture in Winnipeg. It really mattered. It wasn't just because they won and they wanted to defend. They wanted to be around the environment that he has created. So I, I think you've got to take your hat off to what Kyle Walters did to get those guys done on lesser deals. But the environment that Mike O'Shea created, that those guys wanted to be there, it didn't make sense for them to leave for another $10,000 or $20,000 to go somewhere else and not get what they're getting there. You know, couple that with the cost of living in some of the prairie towns, that helps those teams as well. But um, you know, they're in the heyday right now. This is the glory years in Winnipeg. Ottawa is trying to recapture that that culture. Uh, they as well, though, on the flip side of the standings, but a similar stance, tried to do their work early and didn't make necessarily a splash on day one of free agency, given the fact that they need vast improvement. Did that surprise you? Yeah, I mean, I, I like Marcel Desjardins. I think he's done a good job of efficiently managing that organization. I think the best thing they've got going for them right now is having Paul Lapolice as their head coach and offensive coordinator. So I think he's going to be able to make the most of what they do offensively. I think he's going to have a real comfort level with Matt Nichols there at quarterback. You know, I, I know that he liked Nick Arbuckle a lot, and they said all of the right things. But as they went through an offseason – you know, I, I think both quarterbacks got evaluated differently by their respective teams. And all of a sudden, Matt Nichols, who a year ago was evaluated as an injured quarterback, all of a sudden became Lapo's quarterback, a guy that knew the system was completely healthy and the best guy possible to help him implement what he's done. You know, they lose a key offensive lineman in Jason Lozon-Seguin. Um, I think they needed to upgrade at the receiving core. You know, they got Brad Sinopoli back, and, you know, I think they're going to count on some young guys to potentially make some moves there. You know, they lose Evan Johnson, who I think is going to be a longtime starter in this league. Uh, they brought Devon Coleman in. If he could do what he did a couple of years ago, you know, I think that'll help them defensively. But, um, you know, I still think they've got to add some pieces on the offensive side. And so I think the jury's out on Ottawa to this point, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of whether or not they've upgraded.
Yeah, talk to me about that QB musical chairs in the East that that surprised some people and had some people asking some questions. Hamilton, you know, took care of Masoli and, you know, of the the group. He's the guy who really intrigues me because when he's on, he's, you know, as good as anybody. But but our buckle ends up in Toronto. Nichols ends up in Ottawa. We'll we'll see what happens with uh, Macbeth uh, in free agency. But uh, I, I'm... I. I might be, you know, in the minority here, but I actually like Arbuckle and like what his ceiling could be because of the age of the player. But you tell me, how did, you know, we end up getting the swap? Yeah, you know, my understanding is that they had actually agreed to the first year of the deal. And then there was a second year, which proved to be a big hangup. And, you know, there probably wasn't as much dialogue as, as we were led to believe in the middle of the process. But again, you know, as I mentioned, I think both quarterbacks got evaluated completely differently. So if you're Matt Nichols, now you're completely healthy and you're, you know, Lapo's system. And now you're Nick Arbuckle and you're now a quarterback who's only started seven games in 18 months, right? Whereas now you, you just started seven games a year ago. We're going to build on that. Now you almost, I think from Ottawa's perspective, that gap devalued him a little bit. And then from Toronto's perspective, you, you couple him with Ryan Dinwiddie, and I agree with you. Look, I, I I like Matt Nichols a lot, but I do believe that what you saw last year from Nick Arbuckle is what we're going to get going forward. I think he's a really good young quarterback. I think he's got tons of leadership skills. I think guys in the locker room will rally around him. They liked him in Calgary. They've got good things to say about him. I think it'll be a good fit there. And they've put some really good pieces around him. I mean, I look at that receiving core. It's pretty damn good, right? I mean, you get Martavius Bryant from the NFL. You've got DeVaris Daniels there. Uh, you know, they've added a number of pieces. The Canadian and import receiving group is very, very good there in Toronto. So I think he's in an even better situation, right? You've got an established offensive coordinator in Paul Lapolis that you probably would have loved to play for. But in terms of the offensive talent in Toronto, I think it's better than it is in Ottawa right now. So I think this could be a win-win. I think for one quarterback, he wanted to be wanted. I think he wanted more of potential overall compensation. I think the other quarterback wanted more in the way of signing bonus. So I think they both kind of got what they were looking for and in the end i think the right guys are in the right spot let's keep it to quarterbacks but let's move the conversations to canadians uh and michael o'connor goes to the stampeders um naturally that means you know uh people are wondering if you know John Hafnagel and Dave Dickinson, guys who have been quarterback whispers during their time in the league, could you know, unearth something more out of a really physically talented kid. What do you think of, of that fit? I think it's a fantastic fit. It couldn't be a, a better spot for Michael O'Connor to be in a quarterback room with Bo Levi Mitchell and Dave Dickinson. And Dave and I have had conversations about Michael for the last couple of years, and he's always been a fan. And I know they've even contemplated trading for him at various points. And I know that Toronto did want him back. But, um, you know, again, if you look at it and you get a chance to go into that situation with kind of a, I don't want to say a clear shot, because I think Dakota Prukop is another young, talented guy uh, in the right situation. So I think those two guys will have a legitimate battle for that number two spot. And and that's what you need if you're O'Connor right now. You've got to have a legitimate chance at a number two spot. Um you know, I, I'm not sure there was a ton of faith that if he had signed in Toronto, they weren't still going to bring in McLeod Bethel Thompson. Uh, I talked to Dickinson about O'Connor last night, and, and actually Michael and I texted a little bit. I almost felt like I was working for the Stamps, and because and I, I said to him last night, you couldn't have a better spot to go to than Calgary, and, and he still trains out here. And I know his, his, um, 
a movement coach that he and a few other guys work with named Rob Williams uh, that I've also encouraged uh, Nathan Rourke to go spend some time with. So, you know, we've got some some uh, connections that, that where we talk from time to time. And I've always said to him, you got to get to Calgary. This is the right spot for you and your development. And I think everybody around the league has a bias against Canadian quarterbacks, but Dave Dickinson. I really believe that. And, you know, and he's a guy that's that's um, American. Uh, you know, and I joke with him. I said, you were the guy that criticized the Canadian mafia and you like this Canadian quarterback. So we, we've had a few laughs about that. But he legitimately evaluates Michael for who he is and nothing else. And that's what is needed for quarterbacks in this league. So great for Michael. Great fit. And lastly, before I let you go, uh, talk to me about two West teams who have had some changes on their staff from the last time uh, we were in free agency to now. That would obviously be Edmonton, uh, you know, changing in terms of, you know, coaching and then BC change in terms of uh, their front office. How has that upheaval, if you will, um, you know, changed maybe the outlook of what they've looked to do early in free agency and how they'll build a roster? Yeah, you know, I think from the Lions' perspective, they've taken two approaches. They offensively wanted to start with the offensive line and build there. So they, they kind of put out some early contract feelers to like Burnham and Micah Johnson, and those didn't work out. So they quickly turned their attention to building the offensive line and doing everything they could to protect Mike Riley. Now, some will debate whether or not they've done it well because their offensive line was struggling a year ago and they brought back a lot of the same pieces, but they also did sign Riker Matthews a year ago. They were able to get him to restructure and brought him back. And I, I do think there's some good pieces there that are that are ready to take the next step and um, and two years later, I think we'll be that much farther along. And then on the defensive side of the ball, and we'll debate this later, I'm always a believer that the second most important position in all of football is D-line. It's quarterback, then D-line. And they've taken a completely different approach. Defensively, they're building from the back to front. So they went out and got, you know, Anthony Chaffee and um, Marcus Sales and got Kenny Ladler redone. And they, so they wanted to build their secondary and then work their way up and get young. They're probably going to start two Canadian inside linebackers, and they're going to have a lot of youth along their defensive line. So Ryan Rigmaiden does a great job in personnel. So, uh, I, you know, I, I expect he's going to find some good pieces, but there's going to be an adjustment piece there, right? So you've got a, a different coaching staff, a much more experienced coaching staff than what they had a year ago, and this is how they've attempted to build it. Uh, on the other side, you know, I, I think Edmonton has, has done some really, really good things. They didn't make a splash today. You know, James Walder was their one big signing, but they got some stuff done with some, you know, quote-unquote, off-the-street free agents, but some high-quality players. You get Darrell Walker done. So now you've upgraded your receiving core with Ellingson. You get Derek Dennis done. So now your offensive line is a little bit better. You lose Matt O'Donnell, right? So that hurts your ratio-wise. But in terms of overall player, I really like Dennis a lot. I think there's a lot of football left there for him. And then you got Sean Lemon. So you're going to get a guy that can instantly rush the passer. And they've really improved their secondary, right, when they got – uh, they got Johnson back, and then they got, of course, Aaron Grimes. So they've really made some improvements there in the back end, and I think that was an area their team really needed to improve. So I don't think that has a lot to do with the coaching staff. I just think that's Brock Sunderland knowing what he needed on his roster. And they were fortunate. You know, you lose Scott Milanovic to get Jamie Elizondo there. That's a seamless transition. He was probably the runner-up the first time around. You've got, you know, some coaches there that he's worked with before. So I think that's a good thing. I would really hope. Uh, I don't know what Jamie's making. I hope it's less than Scott, only because they need one more coach on that staff, right? That was the smallest coaching staff in the league heading into free agency. So I would hope they could find a way to pay one more coach to round that group out because, you know, I, I think they need it. I think that's one of the biggest negatives 
in our league right now is it's it was becoming a really desirable league to coach in. Now it's tough. Smaller staffs again and, you know, hard to hire, like quality control people to do all that film work. We're back to one-year contracts for a lot of the assistants. I think that part's tough. So, I, you know, and I know I'm digressing a little bit off the Edmonton topic, but I, I hope they can get one more guy in the building. One final question, which I've said three times, but I mean it. Uh, <laughs> hey, I like the, talking the, to you, so let's do it. The, the You mentioned the grassroots aspect, and I think a lot of people understand, uh, you know, your love, your passion for – grassroots football in our country, you know, from your work evaluating players. But I don't know if everyone appreciates that you're actually cultivating some young players, that a lot of your hits that you're doing for TSN are from the practice field because you're literally, <laughs> you know, before or after practice, um, coaching players up and, and helping them, you know, get scholarships and, and you know, achieve their dreams through the sport. I, I worried at the beginning of this pandemic, I worried, I mean, I worried about a lot of things, but but from a sports perspective, I worried about uh, amateur sports and the viability of it to be able to come back. And specifically, I worried about football because there are some positions, quarterback being one, where if you miss one, two, potentially years of development, like that, that's a big deal in a way that's different than if you're a D lineman. And in fact, you know, it might be better if you're, you're raw and you get some real coaching at a later age. Um, depending where you live in this country, you may not have been able to have a football season for two consecutive years as, um, you know, as a youth player. And in, in two years, you could totally change um, your your perception and your ability as a player. You are working with the grassroots. What is the, the current and then the lasting impact of COVID on grassroots football in Canada? Well, I mean, I would hope that people use it as an opportunity to kind of retrench and reset themselves and their individual programs, right? Um, you know, sometimes if you talk to professional coaches, they will tell you the hardest time to develop is when you're actually on the cycle, right? You need to get off the cycle and you talk to coaches who have been fired and they take a year off and they just do professional development. Um, and I think some of those lessons can apply, you know, because I, I think that we get on this, um, I think f flag football, okay, uh, and, and understand the context I'm saying this in. I think flag football has really hurt high school football and older age football in a lot of areas. And the reason I say that is because in many areas across the province from people that I've talked to, it's the same people doing both, right? So people never get a chance to have a break and get better and build their programs because they're constantly coaching. They're going from one season to the next. So that's not an indictment of flag football. It's just kind of the way the calendar works, right? So to be able to step out of it for a little bit might allow people to take a break, have new perspectives on how they want to grow the game and implement them when it's time to come back. So, you know, for me last year, there was no, in British Columbia, there was no high school football, but there was youth football and I coached my son's youth team and it was a blast. I, I enjoyed it so much. And I was happy that we still had lots of numbers of kids that were excited and kids that were just thrilled to get to play. So I think we need to, like I said, reset, recharge, rebuild, and take advantage of the enthusiasm kids are going to have to just want to play when this is over and we're allowed to, you know, and it may not ever completely be over, but at some point we're going to be allowed to play our sports again. That's going to happen. And at that point, there's going to be so much excitement from kids who are losing their minds in their houses 
uh, and don't get to play in games that want to get out and play. And we need to take advantage of that and, and kind of rebuild and just get some excitement in our communities. So, I, you know, I hope people take a chance to do that. And I hope it, it has a recharging effect, not a, um, a negative effect. Yeah, there's going to be a loss in skill development and it's going to be a bubble that we're just going to have to get through. There's no way around that. There's not all of a sudden 50% more coaches to give player X 50% more instruction. I just think we're going to need to get through the bubble. The goal needs to be to keep numbers high. And eventually those kids are going to get built and developed and they'll be able to move through the system. Well, I can't wait uh, till that day when, uh, you know, we are in our new normal um, and, and we could say that this global pandemic is somewhat behind us. When that day comes, you'll be covering the sport, you'll be consuming the sport uh, and you'll be coaching the sport as well. So we really appreciate everything you do for the sport on all fronts. Thank you so much for joining us, Farhan. Hey, my pleasure. And again, thanks for everything you're doing uh, at your network. And I look forward to reading and seeing more of your work. So as you know, on this podcast, I try to play fantasy GM, uh, but I have no executive chops. So we're bringing in someone who could break down some of the nuance of this time of year and the competition that is free agency. And that person is Spencer Zimmon, who has front office experience as a scouting executive with both the Toronto Argonauts and the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the CFL. And so, Spencer, first things first, and thanks for joining us. So everyone is, and it's day one, too, everyone is trying to describe winners and losers, or we're changing the power rankings, we're changing who the Grey Cup contenders are, uh, and we're not even at midnight yet of day one. There's two juxtapositions there is you know the montreals and and the saskatchewans who were were very aggressive had people on their board and went and got them and then there's ottawa and winnipeg two teams on the opposite end of the spectrum last time football was played in terms of the results but in this period did a lot of their work early didn't make a splash in free agency on day one because they spent their money bringing back some players early what do you think of those two different approaches as we enter into, you know, a portion of the year where you try to get better free agency? Yeah. Thanks for having me on Donovan. Excited to, uh, to talk a little, a little football and obviously free agency. And yeah, I know it's a, I know it's an exciting time for CFL fans. There definitely is a lot of different strategies and perspectives that go into it. And they all kind of are predicated on, just where your roster's at, you know, and where the uh, general manager and the head coach and, and the rest of the staff kind of see, you know, their roster and how they project it, you know, into that following season. And, you know, I like to call it kind of the free agent paradox. And, uh, you know, to give you a good, a really elementary example of it is, um, you know, with free agency, 1,200 yards receiving on that team, on Team X, doesn't equal 1,200 yards receiving on your team. And, you know, eight sacks doesn't always equal eight sacks, but the, I guess the extra layer to it that can, that can make it a little complicated is in most cases, you know, production, that production of the player is going to drive the marketplace and that kind of weighing that can create some, uh, you know, some challenges and just in terms of how you're going to use free agency as a tool, you know, to build your team. And, uh, you know, some of the things, there's probably like three things I think that can really create a lot of variance because, Ultimately, what you're doing with free agency is uh, you're using it as uh, you're identifying players and you're projecting them onto your team, obviously players, you know, at other teams. And this is more 
the free agent process from acquiring it from uh, from competing teams. Not obviously within your own roster. That's a different process. But those uh, those three things that are going to create variance in your production really come down to to these three. You got you got your scheme, and what you're looking at is you know you're not always looking at. Uh, what you could be viewing at, you know, a player that out West, if I'm an East team, you know, how, how a receiver is being used by his offensive coordinator schematically doesn't always equate to the way that he's going to be used on your team. And obviously, you know, the way he's you, the, the, the volume of targets he's getting, you know, the routes that he's asking. I mean, you know, a great example of this is, you know, you could be watching tape, you know, there could be a player that, you know, he's just really, really good at stretching the field vertically, you know, and winning vertically. And uh, he's getting the balls, he's getting the targets. And uh, what you might not know is, you know, that player, you know, he's never asked to make sight adjustments. He's got his route, you know, he's either getting the concept or, or, or the play call, the verbiage of it. And he's going out and he's, and he's running that route, you know, where he could be in your offense, he could be asked to make multiple sight adjustments. You know, he could be asked to, you know, he's got to read, you know, after he releases past the field half, like, where's the safety, you know, where is the Sam lifted, like, and he might have to convert his route. And some of those, some of those uh, intangibles don't always get measured on tape, you know, and I think that's like where the scheme comes into it. It's no different than a D lineman. I mean, a D lineman, you might be watching an end who's an ultra productive pass rusher and, uh, you know, in that scheme, they could be given two-way goes. And that means that, you know, they get to how the tackle sets them. You know, they have free reign, whether they're going to jump inside, whether they're going to, they're going to stay, you know, outside and get vertical. And, you know, their, their tackle or, or their linebacker is going to kind of make them right in their contained responsibilities. Well, they could be projecting to your scheme where they don't have that luxury and freedom. And is that going to affect their production? And that's kind of some of the unknown and that's some of the, 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 the layers that go into like when you're actually evaluating the tape. The, the second thing in the variance is the wear and tear on that player. I mean, when you're, when you're acquiring a player in free agency, you're getting that player one year after the tape that you watched and, and the production they had at that tape. And the question you, know, you have to ask yourself is obviously first you have to, like I said, make sure that they can fit your scheme. But the, the second layer to it is, can they replicate it? You know, can they replicate that type of production? And what would hinder them replicating that type of production? And, you know, one of it is just the wear and tear of their bodies. You know, were there, were there injuries that maybe you didn't know about, that maybe didn't show up in the, uh, the injury reports that were shared uh, league-wide? You know, do they have uh, degenerative conditions? You know, could they have been, you know, playing through a hurt shoulder that actually, if you did an MRI on it, you know, it requires surgery, you know, and then you get them week one and, uh, you know, they have, they, they, they hurt their shoulder and then you do the MRI and they're out for the year. So that wear and tear can really create a lot of projection and the variance. And the last thing, and, and really probably one of the most important things is the culture and character. How is that player going to acclimate in your locker room? That player could be coming from a locker room where, um, you know, they get to lift on their own time by themselves. They're going to watch tape. They're going to go home after practice and, and they're going to watch tape, you know, in their house. So they're going to play some video games first or do whatever. And they might be walking into a locker room where their culture, you know, their, their position group, they lift together after practice. Or they're going to come in on, a, on, a, on an off day or after a game and, and they're going to watch tape together and hold each other accountable. And you need to project how that personality, how that person is going to mesh into your group. And, and those three things are probably huge variances and stuff outside of the tape, you know, stuff that, you know, 
the fans in the stands can watch and, and see how explosive and, and how productive and how dominant some of these guys are when they hit the market. But those three things are really important in terms of as the team looking at how they're going to fit your roster. And, so having said that, I think what you're speaking to is, you know, what I love to talk about, like the art and the science of being an executive in all sports, uh, but specifically in football, taking that data in terms of the, the raw production and numbers that you've seen from the player, being a little bit of an actuarial scientist and trying to project that in a new season and, and what that would be over the life of the contract in a new offense uh, at, with a advanced age, which certainly impacts the, a player's ability to play at different positions, but also, you know, taking aspect of the human side of things. Now, I always love when a player kills a team and they go out and they sign them in free agency because that's the tape that those coaches readily watched. It's fresh in their mind. Or a team misses on a, a kid they loved in the draft process and they make sure they get him if he becomes a, a free agent, right? So there's still a human aspect of it because the heart wants what the heart wants ultimately and these are still humans not computers running these teams give me a couple moves that really stood out for you of guys who are nice fits with their new team two that stick out to me so one on the uh on that canadian side on that national side is uh is evan johnson going back to saskatchewan so evan um you know was a first round pick uh a couple years back in, in in ottawa and uh really has developed into a really solid player. I mean, he's still really young and probably hasn't hit the prime of his career. But with Evan, you know, you see the foot speed, the balance. He's got a great frame that's only going to continue to fill out the intelligence just through the, bra- the draft process. I mean, he's he's an engineer by trade, but uh, the football intel, the awareness translated on the field, both in the run game. I mean, you see him just being able to see things see different tracks and zone and, and obviously in the past game, you know, all the stunts, the loops, the blitzes, um, just an impressive guy. And, and although he's a very, you know, quiet, kind of more mild mannered guy off the field, you see that nasty streak, you know, on the field and he's got, you know, uh, guard tackle flex, which is rare for a Canadian player. I mean, his best position is probably guard, but he can definitely, especially with the, uh, the size of your rosters, you know, you're only going to be able to dress maybe six to seven alignment and to have a guy that, you know, if you lose a starting tackle, um, that's an American that can kick out and, and play at a, a functional level out there is just a huge plus and a big coup for, for Jeremy O'Day and the crew over there. I think he's an ascending player, which is rare. I mean, you're, you're, you're not going to get a lot of national players or Canadian players, I should say, in their prime uh, that, uh, that are leaving to go somewhere else and play their best football. But I don't think you always need to look at that as a, uh, like, you know, people would look at that as, well, why, why did Ottawa not re-sign him? And I think in that lens, you look at, well, that's, this was a good problem that Ottawa had. I mean, when you look at Ottawa, uh, since they've, uh, the team's kind of come into inception, they have a great track record of drafting in the first round. I mean, if you look at Nolan McMillan, uh, Antoine Pruneau, Jason Lazan-Seguin, uh, Alex Matias, Evan Johnson, Mark Corte, who's going to be a great player, and Alex Fontana the year before. And then I know they drafted uh, Eau Claire this year, you know, who should come to camp. But they've always hit. They, they, they've developed starters in the first round. That's kind of what you what you mean to do. And when those players develop, you can only keep a certain amount. I mean, that's kind of the that's the art behind how you build your roster and how many guys you can pay. So I don't think that the Evan Johnson one was kind of a, a double-edged sword in the sense of it was a great – 
uh, grab by Jeremy in Saskatchewan, but it was also, you know, just the product of Ottawa drafting, um, you know, strongly in the first round over there. And then, you know, the second player that I think could be a real, you know, surprise player. And, and uh, I mean, he, he definitely wasn't a surprise to CFL fans last year, but it's a lucky whitehead again, going to BC, you know, you look at the production and you're not, you're not jumping off the, t- the table for it, you know, 52 catches, 520 yards, couple touchdowns and uh you know did some stuff in the return game and and also actually on the jet sweep game i mean he's an explosive player he's sudden and elusive he's a home run hitter and when you look at receivers you're looking at receivers and and there's three different levels of how they can affect the game you know that first level being at the line of scrimmage so that's your bubble screens you know that's going to be your sweeps that's going to be like how are we going to put this the ball in this player's hands and allow them to create and make people miss. And and Lucky, you know, shown to be uh, really dangerous, you know, in that in that facet. You know, that second layer is going to be just your, you know, your how are you going to separate at the top of your route? How are you going to create separation? Or how are you going to win at the catch point? You know, whether it's you're you're a real crafty route runner who can set people up in their in your stem and have that quickness and have that body control to to create some separation out of your breaks, or you're a bigger body who has just a great ability to elevate and win at the catch point in that second layer. And that's probably not Lucky's skill set, but that third layer is going to be how you stretch the field vertically. And Lucky obviously possesses that in spades, you know, as well as the return ability. So I know he, uh, you know, he, he started off, uh, you know, really productive and, and ended up, you know, not playing near the end. I'm not sure if that was injury related or if there was some, uh, you know, just he kind of hit that, you know, first year player wall, but, I kind of look back to a guy that, uh, you know, I worked with in Hamilton who uh, really had a, is having a Hall of Fame type career in uh, in Speedy, Brandon Banks. And Speedy's first year, although it was midseason, I mean, there was an acclimation process for him to come in. And he was this explosive, dynamic, very, I mean, he, he came back being a, I think he was a four-year NFL player, you know, for the Redskins. And um, it took him some time to acclimate. And you see, as the years went on, he kind of got his groove first as a returner. And now, I mean, he's this, you know, ultra productive MOP type receiver. And, uh, you know, I think Lucky can kind of be on that path. I'm not, I'm not definitely not comparing him to Brandon Banks or the career Brandon Banks has had, but I see him being another ascending guy who can take off in year two. And I think that was a great get for BC. Just a first, you're getting a, a really dangerous returner, first and foremost. I know they, they also, I think, re-signed Chris Rainey, but you're also getting a guy on offense that you couple with, you know, Brian Burnham, who again affects he if Brian's going to affect the game in that second level. I mean, he's going to use his frame, the strength in his hands to win those contested balls, to shield at the catch point. And you know, you have a guy like Lamar who kind of has a similar Lamar Duran who has a similar skill set. So I think Lucky really blends into that mix. And again, you're getting an ascending player who's obviously going to not only benefit from, you know, being in a setting where I think he's going to get a chance as a returner and maybe as a receiver, you know, but you're also going to get uh, somebody that uh, is jumping into that second year and getting through that first year of learning the nuances of, of the CFL game. So, you know, Evan, you might not notice, but I think that was a great get, get and it's going to solidify their line. And, and uh, you know, I think people will notice lucky when, uh, when the games get rolling in BC. So I thought those were uh, two ads that definitely jumped out to me. Well, I'm looking forward to see how it all plays out. I'm looking forward to checking back in with you to see throughout the offseason who is shaping up and how teams balance that art and that science. Thanks so much, Spence. Hey, I appreciate it, man. 
Man, I could talk to both of those guests all day, which is why this is a little bit longer of an episode, but it's a good one. And there's still so much more to happen in free agency. So again, cfl.ca is where you can go for all the breaking news. Also, follow us on Twitter, on Instagram. We are reporting all of the new signings as they happen. So that's a good way to passively find out right on your phone as soon as news breaks. I want to thank Farhan Lalji at Farhan Lalji TSN on Twitter for coming here and giving us some of his insider knowledge on all of the big signings. And of course, Spencer Zimmerman at Zim Spencer on Twitter. He gave us the inside knowledge on what it's like to put together a board of free agents that you want to go after, which is what all the teams in the league are continuing to do. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Take care. The Waggle, presented by Sport Clips, the official podcast of the Canadian Football League.